It's good to be with you all. We had a great uh, Easter service last week, as many churches across our country did. Um, and on really coming off on the heels of Easter, uh, especially before in a couple weeks, we are going to be doing an event, uh, hosting an event covering, discussing the entire book of Acts. Uh, and really, that's the sequel to Easter, isn't it? I mean, it's a sequel to Easter in that the, the book of Acts is the sequel to the gospel accounts. It is the, the birth, the spread, the growth of the Christian faith. And with that, the Christian church. Now, now, I don't mean the church in the sense of an institutional, organized, well-oiled machine that we tend in our culture, and I don't mean this pejoratively, this, we are informed by the world around us, and so when we think of church, it is hard not to think about kind of the structures, the, the kind of building that we're sitting in. But that, that's not what the book of Acts is recording. It's recording the birth, spread, and growth of the church in its truest essence and, and, and core of what it is. You see, whenever you have the preaching of the gospel, you're going to have the church because the church is the natural result of the preaching of the gospel. God's Word going out always creates God's people. Now, if you come from maybe a Catholic background, that might seem odd because there's a thinking that says that the church births the gospel, and that's not what we believe. We believe that God's Word faithfully going out creates the people of God, which is the church. And so, we thought it was very appropriate to think before we jumped into um, going right back into our series in 1 Samuel, and especially in light of the fact that we have this amazing evening where we're going to talk about the entire book of Acts. And if you've ever wondered, okay, I get the Gospels, I understand all that, but then all of a sudden it just seems like the, 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 the church and the epistles seem so different. What's the connection? Well, the linchpin is the book of Acts. Acts records how radically, as a matter of fact, the Christian faith sprung up from, the, from a Jewish-Hebrew kind of cultic system, and I mean cultic in the sense of there was a lot of ritual, how it went from that to what we see today. How, the book of Acts records how Christianity became Christianity from its Jewish roots. And to be able to see that all in one night, I think it helps connect the dots for many people because a lot of people are unaware of how that happened. So, before jumping into back into Samuel with this event of Acts coming back, I thought it would be good for one Sunday to pause, which I know some of you are hoping I pause when I speak. So, have one Sunday to pause and think about one of the practical results of Easter. One of the practical results of Easter is the church. And to talk about, well, what is the church? You know, uh, that, that, that's a question that you might seem that we, we, of course, know the answer for that. That's what we're here. We do that every Sunday, if those of you uh, who are members of this congregation. But if your understanding of the church is formed primarily by maybe one or two local congregations you've been a part of, that may or may not help you answer that question. And, and certainly, if your understanding and exposure to the church is only what you've seen in Western kind of uh, Christianity for the fat last five decades, that will not be helpful in answering this question of what is exactly a church. As we've seen over the last 50 years, Christianity is kind of ahead in a bit of an identity crisis. We're not quite sure what we are, where we fit. So, having a moment to say, okay, what is a church is actually very significant. My very first sermon preached here was on the same topic. I'm not repeating the same sermon, just to let you know, but it's the same kind of thing because the things we're so familiar with become assumed, and we live out of those assumptions, and we want to make sure that whatever we're assuming is actually grounded in Scripture. 
So when we say, well, what is a church? We know enough to say, well, it's, it's not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a community center. It's not a, a social gathering of morally grounded or like-minded people. The Bible says that the church is a, a movement. The, the Bible says it is a counter-cultural reformation. It is a tactical insertion behind enemy lines of redemptive agents. It is a people with a purpose. If you read the New Testament, every time the word church appears, it's translating the Greek word ekklesia. That means, uh, and, and again, uh, the New Testament was not written in English, it was written in Koine Greek, common Greek of the time. Ecclesia meant a gathering, an assembly, a congregation. It had very normal meanings, but it's become so associated with the Christian faith that it has a technical meaning called the church. And, and that's what's it's challenging sometimes. The initial meaning loses its potency and gets replaced by the meaning we've come to associate it with, and that's good and bad. Ecclesia means the ones called out of something for a purpose. So the question we have to ask then is, if a church is an, a, an ecclesia, a called out ones, what are we called out from and what are we called to? See, that's what has to drive the answer to the question, what is the church? What are we called out to? And my driving point, my driving thesis this morning is that the church is a display of God's glory. I may say a display of the church as a display of God's glory. That's a big claim. I mean, it's so big, it's, it's almost borders on absurd. You can say, how could the church be a display of God's glory with, with all of its flaws and imperfections and struggles? How does that display what we understand of God? Actually, that's one of my points right there. This this thing that we've been a part of for so long, chock full of people just like us, how has it existed for 2,000 years? You see, the problems within a church is not an argument against the church. In my mind, that's an argument that there's something going on here that we cannot explain. Because if it was all about us and a natural thing, this would have fallen apart in the first century. The fact that we are on the other side of the globe 2,000 years later and keep growing shows me that something amazing about the church. And so this morning, I just want to give kind of three reasons in answering the question, how is the church a display of God's glory? My, my answers are this, it's in its nature, in its purposes, and, and, and in its history. Now, you ever heard the expression, um, your eyes are too big for your stomach? right? Typically, you hear that if you're a young man and your mom's saying it to you because you got a plate full of food and you can't possibly eat it all. Well, last night as I was reviewing my notes, I thought, okay, this is kind of a sermon version of your eyes are too big for your stomach because I've got three points, but then I backed up and said, oh, I've got three big points, but I've got three points under each point. That gives me nine points. So, this might be one of those sermons that might be a little bit larger than anticipated. So, what you're going to see is there are some things I'm going to spend more time on and other things I might just kind of push past just because I want to get to the things that really matter. So, with that, let's pray and jump in and talk about this thing called the church. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have freedom to sit here in safety and talk about things that really matter. Thank you that we have a copy of Scripture. Thank you that we have air conditioning, that there's cushions on these seats, that we drove here in a car, that we had a freeway to get here on. It does not escape us, God, that we are blessed in ways that we cannot even comprehend, and it's just every day for us. It does not escape our attention. 
that there are millions of people who do not live this way, that they do not have the infrastructures of society, let alone having the Word of God, let alone having the freedom to hear it being taught without fear of persecution or martyrdom. It does not escape us that your goodness to us is revealed in so many ways that sometimes we take it for granted. For that we repent, and we ask that you'd bless us to have ears to hear what you would have to say this morning, right now, as we think about your wonderful bride, the church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's answer the question, how is the church a display of God's glory? The first response is, in its nature. Now, if you were to read the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, you would find that, that this is a book that is written to help Christians understand what it is to live life together. Uh, the, the interesting thing is you'd read, uh, learn a lot about uh, things from a biblical worldview. You'd learn about marriage. You'd learn about worship. You'd learn about Christian liberties. You'd learn about the gospel. But you would essentially learn that the components of a church are comprised of three things, holiness, unity, and love. Now, what's it's amazing is, um, if you've ever heard people say when they're, when they're in a church, they go, man, why can't it just be easy? Why can't it be like the, the first century when churches were so much more pure? You ever heard anyone say something like that? Well, they obviously weren't reading 1 Corinthians because they were a messed up church. And Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians to, to really straighten them out. So while he doesn't come out saying, I'm going to write you a letter about the church to understand how to live together, there is so much implicit in the book of 1 Corinthians about how to live together, thanks, thanks because we had brothers and sisters who couldn't live together at all. And so out of this book of 1 Corinthians, we see that the essential character of the church are these three things. It's holiness, it's unity, and it's love. And it's not surprising because the church ought to be a reflection of the character of the God who calls these people out to be His people. And because God is, are these things, it's not surprising that the church should be a reflection of that, since the church is a display of His glory. And since God is completely set apart, so should His people be. Since God is one in unity, in purpose, in decision, so should His people be. Since God is the essence of love, so should His people be. So it's not surprising that in a book written to a church that was just off the rails, out of control, and Paul is writing to tell them how to live life together, that these three things would come up. So the whole first one is, is, is holiness. When we think about holiness, like the word church, this is another one of those words that suffers from the fact that it's been redefined by common usage. When we think of holiness in our culture today, what do people tend to think? They, 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 they tend to not think that that's a compliment, right? If you ever said to somebody, oh, you're holy, you don't go, well, thanks, that's really kind of you. That's not how we tend to use the word. It actually has the opposite effect. It's kind of this negative connotation to it. It kind of means snobbery or self-righteous or kind of too aloof or something, right? You know, holiness, its root word simply means set apart. That, that's, that's what it means in its core, to be distinct, to be something set apart for a special use, not to be mingled with anything else. So guys, help me out here. You know what this is like. When, if you've played sports, we've all had a pair of holy socks, right? I don't mean they had holes in them. They were the socks you wore. They were your lucky socks, and you always had to wear those socks, right? 
Or um, I had one guy that had boxers that he never washed for the season. They were his set-apart boxers. They were his, can I say it? They were his holy boxers. They were set apart for a special use, and if you wash those, you would ruin the the point they were set apart for. So whenever we had an important game, out came the holy boxers or out came the holy socks. Ladies, I have no idea what parallel women have for holy things, but the guys get it. We have things that are holy. That's what holy means, right? It's not this, oh, I'm a goody two-shoes. That's not the connotation. It's these things are set apart for a specific use for no other purpose but this use. You think about it. The way our lives are organized together in a local congregation, there are certain things built in to keep us set apart from the world, isn't there? For example, what we're doing right now. I mean, we, we are setting apart a day of our lives. The first day of my week, of our week, we set apart for the things of God, to be with the people of God, to, to worship God, to receive from God, to be instructed so we can be of better use for Him and His purposes. We set apart the first part of our time. We set apart the first part of our income. How crazy is that in this world where everyone's looking to get as much as they can, and as Christians, we're saying, oh, no, 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 I set apart the very first that I get, and guess what I do with it? I just give it away, right? How crazy is that if you're not a Christian, right? Me and my wife are always reminding ourselves we are so surrounded by Christians, we forget what it, how radical the message of Christ is. That we actually say that God is saying, no, 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 you, you actually can survive off 90% of your income. You think you need 110, but I think you just need 90, and if you can trust me, I'm going to show you that. We have things built into our lives that just set us apart for purposes. Why do you think in the Old Testament, God had these huge dietary rules, right? The dietary rules were given to physically set the people of God apart from everyone else. I love meat. If my wife was a vegetarian, we would have never got married. Because what do you do when you're courting someone? You have dinner. You have food together. So God said, no, my people, your diet is going to be limited. And that move alone kept the people of God very distinct from every other people. That's why in the New Testament, Acts chapter 10, Jesus, the Lord said to Peter in a vision, hey, all foods are permissible. Just eat whatever you want. It wasn't because he got lazy. It's because he realized, I've got to bring down the barrier that separates people. Now that you can eat unkosher food and the Jews and Gentiles could have fellowship together. And Peter's mind was blown. There are things in our lives, there ought to be things in our lives that set you apart. They don't make you snobby. They don't make you self-righteous. They set you apart for a certain purpose, and that is to be used for God's glory. Secondly, so, uh, the, the church is a display of God's uh, glory in its holiness, uh, and then it's in its unity, because we are united, we are united because God is one. Now, notice, when Paul hears of the divisions in the Corinthian church, in Corinthians chapter 1, if you're a note taker, write down verse uh, 13, go back to verse 12, probably, probably verse 10, 10 to 13. When Paul recognizes that the church was fragmenting and, and, and becoming disunified, he poses a theological question to them to resolve the issue. So, they're all splintering off, and he says in verse 12, uh, verse 11, he says, "'For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers.'" 
What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, Paul writes? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, the, the, these people, these early Corinthians are saying, oh, no, 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 I'm one of Apollos' guys. No, I'm with Cephas. Nope, I'm from Paul. Oh, I'm from Christ. And Paul says, this is crazy. Christ is not divided. Eleven chapters later, he'd use the metaphor that the, the church is a body, and a body that's divided, that's pretty painful, right? Anyone have a dislocated joint or something, you know what I'm talking about. A body that's become divided is a very painful thing. Paul's saying that if there's a church that is divided, that's a painful thing. More than that, it's actually a lie about what the character of God is like and who He's like. A, a church that's disunity, has disunity is a lie about the very character of God because God is united. You remember in our study of the book of Ephesians, uh, we read about this. Let me just refresh your memory. Ephesians chapter 4, you can turn to it because it's going to take me a while to get there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul writes this, "'Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, okay? So, Paul's saying, I want you to walk a certain way, and then in verse 2, he explains what that way is, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It says, there is this unity I want you to have. And when you just read those verses, like verse 2 and 3, doesn't that just sound like a wonderful community that you want to be a part of? That they're just, they're eager to maintain the unity through the bond of peace with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. You know, I often feel that people leave local churches for the exact reason God gave them a local church. Where else is someone going to offend you? And you have the built-in conceptual categories to seek forgiveness and to be restored and work through issues. You're not going to find that in the world. You will in the church, hopefully, right? God has given us the local church for the very reason most people leave local churches, right? And Paul says that's not the way it should be. It should be one. You should be unified in Christ. Now, I've been here for a year, and, and people from my other churches or my, my seminary, they say, how's it going? You've been at Christ Community for a year. How are things going? And among other things that I, I have wonderful things to report, what I've always said is, you know, I think we have experienced an unusual measure of God's unity this past year. I do not take that for granted, right? And, and that's not by accident. You all have been praying for each other. We've been praying for that. Our denomination has been praying for that. People have been praying for us. But when I explain how has it been this year, it's that we have enjoyed an unusual measure of God's unity. And I love that. I love that our church is increasingly growing different amongst the congregation 
but that hasn't changed what we're about. I love, and I'll never forget, I was sitting somewhere here, we were singing this wonderful hymn. It was just really just phenomenal old school hymn, and he immediately jumped into a contemporary chorus and didn't miss a beat at all. Nobody did this. Well, I'll wait till this song is done. All right, this is the song I'll jump in. It wasn't that way. I've seen churches that way. I've been to churches. I said, honey, there's like two congregations in this church. I love the fact that we haven't experienced that because there's a unity. And notice in this book of 1 Corinthians, Paul, so radical, refers, talking about the unity, refers to the body, the church, as the body of Christ. Think about that. that. We are so used to some of these metaphors that the impact of them just kind of washes over us. Paul says there is to be such a unity within churches, within the church, you're like a body. As a matter of fact, you're Jesus' body. And actually, Acts chapter 9, Jesus said that to Paul himself, didn't he? When, when Paul was persecuting, ravaging the churches, murdering the disciples, Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, well, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. You see, Jesus said, look, me and my people, we're like this. We're one, and my people are that way. When you attack my people, guess what? You're attacking me. You know, practical application here, you know what this means? This means that there is no concept of a Lone Ranger Christianity. There is no room, there's no understanding in the New Testament of a kind of Christianity that says, it's just me and Jesus, I don't need the kind of organized church, I'm not into that, I love to get a cup of coffee at Starbucks and that's my church, or I go down to the beach and it's just me and Jesus, we're fine. That's not New Testament Christianity. Jesus so associates with His people that He expects His people to associate with one another in the same way. Now, just, just a little uh, promo here for our membership class. This is a, like a 10,000-foot, 30-minute overview of what we talk about for five hours in membership class, right? So please, I hope that was a good promotion for our membership class. Go to the membership class. Because I'll be honest with you. I'll be really honest with you. I, I, I really am curious, very worried about the fellowship people claim to have with Jesus and with God because I don't see the same fellowship with the people of God. It's just them and Jesus. They're fine, but they're, they don't want anything to do with His people, or they're very tangentially related with His people. When I read this, I can't turn a page without recognizing that if I'm going to love Jesus, that means loving us, and for you, loving me and the person sitting next to you. You can't separate it because we're the body. Just from a statistical point of view, if any of you are statisticians and like this kind of thing, in the New Testament, whenever you see the word you, the, the second person uh, pronoun, you. In English, it's just you and you, right? The people in the South, our, our, southern, our brothers and sisters in the South, they got it right. Anybody from the South here? What do you say? What is it when you're talking to a group of people? Y'all, right? So we know they're talking to all of us, y'all. Y'all's all y'alls, right? In proper English, it's just you. Now, so when we're reading you, whether that second person pronoun is singular or plural, we have no idea. It's just you. There's no y'all there. So do you know in the New Testament, the second person pronoun, you, the singular, occurs 180 times. So what that means is, of the 27 books of the New Testament, the writers are writing to an individual Christian to read this, to, to think about something. They say, well, that, see, that sounds like quite a lot, so maybe we're justified just me and Jesus. But the second person pronoun, you, 
occurs over 900 times. More than five to one. When you read you in the New Testament, it's not talking about individual Christians sitting at Starbucks or at the beach or doing your own thing at home on a Sunday morning. It's talking to local congregations of gathered Christians. And that's just one little statistic. I have two pages of this stuff I wrote this week that I'm not going to share this morning. But that just blows my mind that the New Testament conceives of the Christian life not as an individual walk. Jesus is not looking for individuals. He's calling to himself a people. He can't get away from it. When, when God called the nation of Israel, he said, I want all of you, not just you, Moses, not, not the priesthood. I want all of you at the mountain all through the Old Testament. I want you all to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. I want all my people here all the time. You know, that's like a, a happy grandfather, right? A, if any of you are grandfathers, you want all the grandkids. Yes, you're glad when you get one or two, but you'd rather have them all the time. It's not just one or two, and we have to conceive of it that way. So, that's an example of me having to point, put, I got to move past this next one. So, the final thing about the nature of the church is that as John 4, uh, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love, the community, the people of the church ought to be loving as well. We ought to be loving as well. But now, the, if the church brings, uh, is a display of God's glory because of our nature, there's nothing else like the church in this world. It follows that that unique nature means we have a unique purpose. That's the second way that the church is a display of God's glory. It's in our purpose. And the first is there's this vertical dimension of purpose, and then there's a couple of horizontal. The first is our worship to God. We have a ministry to God, an upward ministry that is of worship. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, that, that, that Christ destined and appointed us to live for the praise of His glory interesting, that we are to live for the praise of His glory. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, this is one of the most amazing verses in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.15, if you have a Bible, flip open to that. Paul says something just so radical. I'm going to take it up at verse 14. Actually, I'm going to go from verse 13 because it kind of fits my mental state now. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Okay, so, so here's how we study our Bibles. Okay, so for the love, that's a statement. How? How's that happen? Because we have concluded this. So the love of Christ controls us because we've come to a conclusion as we studied Scripture that, that was just added stuff. What he says is, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, Paul is saying something so counterculturally radical even for the modern church, because I think a lot of what we've, we've done to bro- draw people into the churches in the last couple decades is, is made people think it's about me, and, and, it's, and it's really not. Uh, it can't get clearer than what Paul says here. He, he's actually saying, actually, it's, it's not about you at all, really. It, it's about you understanding that it's all about Him. But here's the amazing gospel switch. 
when you get that it's all about him, you realize this is all for me and it's for my good. God's glory is for my good, right? We are all beings pursuing glory. Have you thought of that? We are hungry for glory. What is entertainment, our entertainment culture, if not a culture saying we love glory? We love to, we love to give it. We love to receive it. We are creatures about glory. That's built into us. God put that there. The problem is we put it on all the wrong things, right? We, we glorify all the wrong things. And what Paul's saying is when you learn to glorify God and realize that you live for Him, it all comes into place, The love of Christ controls you because you recognize it's all about Him to begin with, which is why He could say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you're playing with your kids, whether you're crunching numbers at the office, whether you're studying at school, you do everything for the glory of God because that's what it's about. So, second, uh, there's this horizontal dimension. So, that's the vertical dimension. There's a horizontal dimension, uh, and that is the church has a ministry to believers. That is a a ministry of of nurturing. According to Scripture, uh, the church, and and the church being the body of Christ, the people, not necessarily the institutions or the structures or the formalities, but the people together have an obligation and, and a responsibility to nurture those who are part of the body of Christ. Colossians 1.28, Paul says that his goal was not simply to have people become Christians, or, or excuse me, to become converts. His goal was to develop them into maturity. Colossians 1.28, him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And to that end, God raises up people within the body of Christ, not just the paid staff by any means, the body of Christ. Now, I came from a church, many of you know, that we didn't have a senior pastor. Five of us shared the the pulpit, you could say. And people would always say this to us in our neighborhood. Oh, yeah, that's the church. You guys don't have a pastor, do you? And we would say back, say, oh, no, 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 we, we have 400 pastors. And they would go, wow, how can you afford that? Wah, wah. And then they would start to connect the dots. And we say, that's exactly right. We don't, we, yeah, we don't have one pastor. We got 400 of them, you know. That's what Paul's getting at. That, that there are those, however, that call to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Right? So you guys gather to get equipped. I've been privileged to spend numbers of hours in the Scripture putting these things, thinking through this, so that my love language is food, right? So I'm spiritually feeding you. That's how you know I love you. The day I just come up, tell jokes, and show a lot of videos, you know I don't love you anymore. I love to give you God's Word, so I'll spend hours every week on this so that you guys can do the work of ministry, so that just not four or five of us on staff are doing ministry. There's a church of 400 of us doing ministry. And, and the third way this happens, so, so, so that's the, the nurturing to the believer. And I was thinking, there's this third point, of, and that's a church has a ministry to the world through evangelism and mercy. And rather than me just talk about it, Marcus, stand up, please. So, so Marcus is part of our church. Many of you know him. What were you doing Tuesday night, just briefly? I think it's on. Or you can sock really close to me. That's a little creepy. Can, yeah. can, just, can we get that mic going? 
There we awesome. Go. There we go. Um, basically, what we do is we, uh, the college group, Alethea, every once in a while we go out to the Irvine Spectrum and talk to people uh, about abortion as uh, a way to basically educate them and ask people what they think and how they feel about it. And it's shocking to see how most often people um, don't understand that a fetus is a living human being and don't understand that it is a distinct individual that is going to grow into someone just like you and me. And they use uh, situations to justify the killing of an innocent human being. And we use that also as an evangelism tool because eventually we get to the point of, wait, why are you talking about this? Why are you coming out here to tell us about whether or not it's okay to kill an innocent human being? Let me go to morality and then eventually to the gospel if that opportunity presents itself. But it's very shocking to see how abortion is such a, a touchy subject but is so easily used uh, to glorify God and really speak the truth in compassion. So. so so, thanks, Marcus. So that's just brief of Aletheia getting together on Tuesday nights, trying to think through biblically what is a biblical view of life and how does it apply to a culturally relevant topic like uh, abortion. So they're not out there every week doing that. My point simply is that we've got believers getting equipped and they're going out into the marketplace of ideas as a ministry to the world of evangelism. And it's not just evangelism on, on these kind of like apologetic intellectual topics. It's evangelism of mercy. So we've got people in our church, I don't want to embarrass them, but I hear stories where we got this young family, they're at the hospital, and there's this 19-year-old young lady who's falling apart because she can't afford her copay. So this family, it's not like they got money coming out of their ears. They say, hey, let they walk over and pay the copay. Opens an opportunity to show mercy to them. So, so we got people going out, getting equipped, sharing the gospel through unusual, culturally relevant ways. We got people showing acts of mercy. And then we've got this thing right here. So, so I was just so excited. I saw this last night. It's the Uni Coffee. For those of you who know the Pattons, they're missionaries that we support. I, I think uh, Heather came from our church. Is that correct? Can anyone correct me on that? Yes, so Heather came from our church. She used to sit where you're sitting. So her and her husband, with a passion for bringing the gospel to the other ends of the earth, not just to share the gospel or um, do Bible studies, but they thought, why don't we bring an a way to bring their economy, give them a livelihood? So they started this, this coffee company to be a blessing to the people around there, the farmers, so they can get their own money, survive, sustain themselves, get some money, and raise their livelihood, and hear the gospel. By the way, I just got this last night. They are selling their first, I guess, batch, if that's what you call it, and it ends on April 5th. So buy some of their coffee. I think the website is unicoffeeco.com. Just Google it. My point is simply this. This is the work of the church. In all kinds of ways, through direct evangelism or showing mercy, paying someone's copay to being strategic about moving into an unreached people group and saying, let's just not bring them the, the message of salvation, which is really what we want, but let's bring them an economic livelihood that will change their lives. That, that's how the church is a display of God's glory. So as a result, I know I'm going all over the place, we talked about the nature of the church, and we talked a little bit about the purposes of the church. To the degree that we as Christians and churches are being faithful to these purposes and natures, the history of the church is also a display of God's glory. You know, since the, the first instance in Acts chapter 6, when the Hellenistic widows were cared for by the early church, all the way through the founding of Yale and Princeton and Harvard seminaries, that's now the universities, 
to, in the 1700s, to the 21 missions that populate the, the California coast, to the fight against the slave trade and the genocide in the Sudan. The church has been a display of God's glory, not because institutionally we're doing things, but because Christians are taking the call seriously. Now, rather than read off a laundry list of the, the kind of good things we do, I just want to share three brief stories. One, not related to me at all. Two, the second one, indirectly related to me because it's where I'm from. And the third one, directly related to me because he's a friend. Now, just to be clear, if you're visiting with us, this is not a pat ourselves on the back, rah, rah moment. This is just being fair. If you were here when we did our study in, in 1 Samuel 2, I was very upfront about the flaws of the church and the black eyes that we have and the black eyes that the church has deserved. But that's what we are. We are a mixture of flawed people being used by God's grace. So this is not an attaboy moment. This is just the reality of what the church is. First story is Amy Carmichael. This is an amazing young lady. At the tender age of 24, she left her wealthy Irish home, spent 15 months in the nation of in the empire of Japan before she finally landed in uh, India. Beginning in 1894, for 55 years, she served in what's called Donover Fellowship in India. She never returned to her family in Ireland. Can you imagine being 24, single, and then moving to some place like, well, India, which, and the, the, the thing that made her significant was she found that during the, in these temples, young children were being exploited into temple prostitution. To great risk of her own safety, she would start taking these young girls away from the temples that they were being married to the gods and then given to the Hindu men. She would take these young girls and protect them. And as God continued to bless the movement, it, it was, as if it wasn't enough, she just started saving these lives. She, as God blessed and people came, they began schools and they began orphanages. For a hundred years, obviously Amy passed away many years ago, but the Donover Fellowship has been in existence and saved the lives of thousands of children in that area. Where there was only humiliation and sexual exploitation, now a wellspring of hope and family flourishes. So here's a Facebook page of, of the school that they founded. The school's name is Santosa Vidyalaya, which means School of Happiness currently houses 600 children who otherwise would be on the street, homeless, or sold off into child prostitution. All because of a single 24-year-old girl who said, I'm part of the church, I got to make a difference. Second story, amazing. This one's more a little indirectly related to me. Uh, Henry Obukaya, uh, known among the Hawaiians as Kamehoala, means the awakener, because he more than anyone was single-handedly responsible for the gospel coming to the kingdom of Hawaii. As a young man, um, um, Obukaya, was his, actually his name is pronounced Opukahaya, uh, Opukahaia, that's his name, sorry, so many vowels here. Opukahaia realized, as he was being trained to be a kahuna, a priest, he realized that the polytheistic system of the Hawaiians was bankrupt, corrupt, and falling apart. The kapu system that which their lives were associated with was falling apart. To escape this, he, took, he became a stowaway on the Triumph, a New England merchant vessel. What are the odds that the Triumph would be captained and crewed entirely by devout Christians? When they found their stowaway, they shared the gospel with them. Opukahaia became a believer and eventually ended back in England when the Triumph docked, and a church adopted him as one of their own, teaching him to read and write both English and Hebrew. 
and the Opukahia began to translate the Old Testament into the native language of Hawaiian. Then he began to go on a circuit tour throughout New England, preaching the gospel, proclaiming that the kingdom of Hawaii desperately needs the gospel. As a direct result of his work, Henry, uh, they couldn't pronounce Opukahia, they just called him Henry. Uh, as a direct result of Henry's work, the Thaddeus was launched in 1819. The Thaddeus was the first missionary vessel to the kingdom of Hawaii. He didn't go, and unfortunately, he died that year. He's buried now in a, a graveyard in Connecticut at the young age of 26. But Opokahia's vision happened, the spread of the gospel, until eventually Queen Liliuokalani, on the very volcano that the goddess of fire Pele was thought to inhabit, defied centuries of idolatry and publicly professed her commitment to Jesus Christ and saved the Hawaiian culture for the next century. Now, they're having problems again now, but it's because they're actually departing from these roots. But the point is, this young man got saved because this young church, this church in New England, brought in what was culturally thought a barbarian and a primitive, taught him English and Hebrew, and then started a missions movement. And then finally, a friend of mine by the name of Ken Tamplin. Now, uh, if, if you've seen a, a TV show or movie in the last decade, you've heard Ken's music. He is a, a music writer for the entertainment industry. What I love about Ken is that while most of us pick up like golf or racquetball or some kind of leisurely activity, Ken has dedicated his life to work with um, Christian Solidarity International and the Baroness Carolyn Cox from the British House of Lords to bring international attention to the genocide that's been taking place in Sudan. The Sudan. If you know of the genocide in the Sudan, chances are in part it's because of his work behind the scenes. They raise money to buy back slaves to reunite families and do everything they can to bring the international community to get involved in what's happening there. When I talked to Ken about it. I love what he said. He says, I am doing physically what Christ has done for me spiritually, bought me back from the slavery of my sin and brought me into the family of God. Three very different lives, only one thing in common. Got an Irish, a wealthy Irish woman, a, a, a native Kahuna Hawaiian priest who becomes a Christian, and a musician in Orange County. The only thing they have in common is they are part of the church. They are part of this church who see that God has a purpose for the church much greater than themselves. Now, you take these three stories, you multiply them 10,000 times, and that's just the glimpse of the heritage that we all belong to in this church. Now, how is the church a display of God's glory? I think the answer is pretty obvious here, right? Because of its nature, its purposes, its history, its people, its message, its trajectory. That's what we're a part of. And I hope that as we get closer, I hope if you were thinking, oh, I don't want to go to that Acts show, let's tie this all back again together, is the reason I did this was when you see this performance, I'm going to be there. I hope you see that was the beginning of our legacy in history. And that is what God intends the church to be throughout the world. Wherever station, whatever you are at, is to be a display of His glory. And one of the ways we're going to do that this morning is to remind ourselves of how it all started, and that's with the life and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to share communion together. Um, if you've never done this at Christ Community Church, we do it a little bit different. In a moment, we're going to have servers that are stationed here, and, and you're going to come down, tear a piece of bread, and dip it into the cup, and they're going to pronounce a blessing over you. Uh, we find it intimate, and we just love the way that's done. 
If you have, need a gluten-free alternative, we have that here. So just come on down to this aisle. Let's pray. Father, just in this past 35, 40 minutes, we just scratched the surface of how your plan to redeem humanity has been the, has been the church for all of its victories and losses, for all the things, that, that the good and the bad, this is your plan, and we are grateful to be a part of it. Father, give us a love for the things that we ought to love. Lord, that is one of the hardest things about being a Christian, is cultivating the things that love for the things that sometimes we don't naturally love. Help us to love the church, because this is your bride. This is your people. This is whom you have set your affections on. And Lord, as we have heard, we have a wonderful fantastic legacy to be a part of. Lord, we pray as we experience the Lord's Supper together that it would further galvanize the unity we have in Christ, that it's only through Christ and His work and His resurrection that justifies us before a holy God. We are humbled and thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. This message titled, The Church, a display of God's glory, was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information or resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.